0: Well, we have been studying the gospel of Mark, and we come this morning to a section of Mark that is rather brief, Mark chapter 9, verses 30 to 32. I'm going to read those verses, and in these verses, we find that Jesus is resuming his concentrated teaching of the 12 apostles. The text reads as follows, from there, they went out and began to go through Galilee And he did not want anyone to know where he was teaching his disciples and telling them the son of man is to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. But they did not understand this statement and they were afraid to ask him. From this brief text, we're going to see three things. The priority Jesus places on teaching his disciples, the primacy Jesus gives to his death in his teaching, and then the obstinacy of the disciples' ignorance in the face of Jesus' teaching. So first, consider with me the priority that Jesus places on teaching his disciples. Again, verse 30 and the first part of 31. From there they went out and began to go through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, etc., It says, from there they went out. Well, the question is, from where? Well, the last notation of a physical location is back in chapter 8, verse 27, where they were in Caesarea Philippi. It was there that Peter had made the great confession, you are the Christ. It was there that Jesus did some teaching about true discipleship. It was there that he took the three up on the Mount of Transfiguration, where they saw Jesus in his glorified form. And it was there that coming down from the mountain, Jesus cast the demon out of that demonized boy. And now they're coming south from Caesarea Philippi, and they're coming down into the region of Galilee. And Galilee was a place where Jesus had exercised a lot of ministry. We refer to it as the great Galilean ministry. Much of Mark's gospel, as we have seen it, has been that great Galilean ministry. Ministry where Jesus has, has taught and done miracles and, and um, displayed his, his power and his glory. But notice that he, as he comes through Galilee, he did not want anyone to know. He wanted to pass through Galilee with a low profile. The people knew him well there. It would have been easy to gather a crowd had they known that Jesus was passing through with his disciples. It would have been easy to gather a crowd because they had been the recipient of his miracles and his teaching. But Jesus maintained a low profile. It says in the Greek he was passing by Galilee, a word indicating that he did not intend to stop in the region of Galilee. Why not? The reason is in verse 31. For he was teaching his disciples. You see, at this point in his ministry, the, priori- the, the precedence of teaching his disciples took priority over ministering to the masses. There was a time to minister to the masses, to teach the multitudes, to work miracles, but now was a time to concentrate on teaching the disciples. This was his priority concern. From this fact, I want to make some observations. And the first is this. The purpose of Jesus dictated his priorities. When you read the Bible, you find that God has a plan. God has a great plan for the ages. It's expressed in Ephesians 1.11, where it says that he is working all things according to the counsel or plan of his will. And as you read the New Testament, you find it's full of purpose statements regarding the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me give you a few of them. John 6, 38, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Luke 19, 10, the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Galatians 4, Paul tells us that he came to redeem those who were under the law. In 1 John 3.8, John tells us he came to destroy the works of the devil. In Titus 2, we're told that he came to purchase a people who would be zealous for good deeds. Remember in, in Mark and earlier and in Matthew 16, he says he has come to build his church. And in the Great Commission, he has come that his message might extend to the ends of the earth. Go and make disciples of all the nations. These are some purpose statements as to why Jesus came. Now, let me just distill it in one broad statement about the purpose of God sending Jesus Christ. I put it this way. The purpose of God in sending Christ and in Christ's coming was in order to carry out the plan of God conceived in eternity to redeem a people for himself through faith who would be gathered into local assemblies, churches, churches to be nurtured and grow to maturity and eventually to be taken with him in heaven and eventually the, the new earth, all to the glory of the triune God. That's the plan and purpose of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit for the ages. That's the master plan. Now, it was this great multifaceted purpose which dictated Jesus' priorities on the earth. I'm making the point that his purpose dictated his priorities. One of the purposes of Jesus was to get people to believe in him as the promised Messiah and Redeemer. And so what did he do for much of his ministry? He worked miracles, signs, evidencing that he was coming by the power of God. He healed people. He multiplied bread and fish. He raised the dead. And he taught multitudes in order to show that he was a a worthy object of faith. And so that purpose dictated the priority of teaching the multitudes and working miracles. But his purpose was also to provide an inspired interpretation of his saving work for generations to come and to lay a foundation for the church until the end of the age. And for that, he chose 12 men, it says in Mark 3.14, to be with him and to be sent out to preach. They were to be... The foundation stones of the church, they were to be the inspired penmen who wrote the New Testament. They were to start the early churches and get the ball rolling for the the church that would exist until Jesus returns. Ephesians 2.20 says the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. So for our Lord Jesus, his purpose dictated his priorities, Next, his priorities dictated his activities. Here, Jesus is giving priority to teaching the 12. Why was that? Well, time was running out. The shadow of the cross was looming larger, and his purpose was not only to elicit faith, but his purpose was to establish a foundation of the church through these apostles And so now he made it his priority not to teach the masses, not to work miracles, but to give concentrated teaching to the 12. You see that? His purpose here was dictating his priority, and that in turn determined his activities. Thirdly, we note that the priorities of Jesus shifted during his ministry, Early on in the chapters of Mark, he is dealing with the multitudes. He's working miracles. He's teaching the masses to elicit faith in himself, to establish himself as the predicted prophet, the predicted Messiah, the predicted Redeemer. But now his priority is shifted. Now he's focusing on training the 12. His emphasis has changed. So regarding the present priority of Jesus... that that he places on teaching the disciples, we note that the purposes of Jesus dictated his priorities and the priorities of Jesus dictated his activities and his priorities shifted during his ministry. Now, how does that relate to us? I think that relates very directly to us. The pattern of our Lord Jesus Christ is a paradigm for us to follow in our lives. When you study the life of Jesus, you see that it was well-ordered. It was not haphazard. It was not unplanned. It was not disorganized. It was not unstructured. There was a clear purpose, and his purpose dictated his priorities, and his priorities dictated his activities. Now, can you see where I'm going with that for us? Purpose dictates priorities, and priorities dictate activities. Our lives should reflect the Lord Jesus. He, His life, his ministry provides a pattern, a paradigm for us in our lives because we, too, ought to have a clear sense of purpose, priorities, and those priorities ought to dictate our activities. Now, as Christians, God has filled our life with purpose. And the overarching purpose, as given in the in the catechism, what is the chief end of man? to glorify God, and to enjoy him forever. That is the overarching purpose for which we were made. How is that fulfilled? First, by getting into right relationship with God through Jesus Christ, and then living a life of loving obedience to God in every area of our lives. But that great purpose of living for the glory of God and enjoying him breaks down into more particular purposes and priorities that God has given to us as his people. First of all, consider you men. You have clear callings, clear purposes, and clear priorities in your life. And we ought not to be confused about what they are. The world is terribly confused. Men in the world do not know who they are what they're supposed to be. They have no guiding light. And maybe you've noticed that in recent years, the the phrase is thrown around, toxic masculinity. Have you heard that? Now, if by toxic masculinity is meant men using their authority and their power to abuse women and their wives, we totally agree that is toxic, that is poisonous, that is to have nothing to do with a Christian, And we're totally against it. It is abhorrent, if that's what you mean by toxic masculinity. But the world usually doesn't mean that. That means men exercising leadership and authority in any way. That, we say, is wrong because God has ordained men to be leaders and to use that leadership in an edifying way. And so as men, you know who you are. You are called to be leaders, loving leaders in your home, leaders of your children, bringing up your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, keeping them under control with all dignity. You're called to be providers. You're called to be diligent workmen in society, according to the vocation God has given you, according to the gifts he's given you, according to the opportunities he's given you to make a living and you're called to be leaders in the church. Your purpose and priorities then dictate your activities. Likewise, as women, as Christian women, you need not be confused about who you are and what you're called to be and to do. Now, the world is terribly confused, right? The world of women do not know who they are. And Are we to be equal to men? Are we to compete with men? And the world has no guiding light, but we do. And as women, if you're called to be married, God outlines your calling very clearly. You're to be primarily a worker at home, you're to be a respectful helper to your husband, you're to nurture your children in the home. You are to use your gift in the church to serve, but not to lead. If you're called to be single, the apostle Paul indicates that as a single person, you're not divided like married people. You have more time to invest in serving the Lord. And you are to do that at least until such a time as you are married, and then you serve him in the context of marriage. Children, you have a very clear calling from the Lord. The overarching command of your life as you're a child in the home is what? Ephesians 6.1, children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. You're to know God, to trust Jesus Christ, but then to primarily live out your Christianity in the context of the home, right? And then we're called to be church members. That's a calling we have. When we come to Christ, we're called to be members of a church. And I would say to some of you who have been visiting for some time, at some point, hopefully you'll get to the point where you know us well enough as to whether you want to join this church or not. And I would encourage you to then come to me and take steps toward official membership. Uh, If you're not convinced that membership is important, give me the opportunity to convince you that we're to be more than church attenders. We are to be committed members of the church. I have a lot from the Bible to use to convince you. I think you are convinced. But we're called to be members of the church. And in that context, we're called to serve one another, all those one another duties, 25 or 30 of them, and to use our gift to build up one another. And then we're called as neighbors to love our neighbors, to seek to witness to our neighbors and those we come a, a, across, uh, who cross our paths every day. We're called to be citizens. We're called to be basically submissive to the government, unless the government uh, transgresses its boundaries where we need to defy government, but otherwise we're to be submissive to government. We're to shine as lights in the world. God has given us clear purposes and clear priorities in life. And those priorities then dictate our activities. Now, here's the challenge. To ask yourself the question, do my activities, does my schedule accurately reflect what I say are my God-given purposes and priorities? God is obviously first in our life. Are you setting aside time to meet with God, to spend time in God's Word, to marinate your mind in the Word of God, to meditate upon it, to pray, because God is your first priority? If you're married, your spouse is your next priority. That is the most important human relationship. Are you making that your priority? Even over your children. Why? Because your marriage relationship predated children. It will outlast children. And you want to be cultivating that husband-wife relationship as your primary human relationship. And then you have a commitment next to your children. You don't want to be out there ministering to everybody else and neglecting your own children. This is especially important for pastors. We're to be well managers of our own home, and you need to make your children a priority over outside ministry. And then we need to balance work and church. Yes, you're committed, men especially, to go out and provide for your family. We're also committed to, be, uh, to, to the work of the church. And then you know what another priority is? Put the people of God over the world. Galatians 6.10, do good to all men, especially those of the household of faith. So do you see where we've come? Jesus had a purposeful life. His purpose dictated his priorities, which at times shifted, and his priorities dictated his activities. It should be so with us. God has given us callings, purposes, which then dictate our priorities in life and then should determine our activities. Does your schedule reflect what you say are your God-given purposes and priorities. Well, let's move on to consider from the text the primacy that Jesus gives to his suffering and death in teaching the disciples. So he makes it a priority now. There's a time for teaching the masses. There's a time for working miracles. Now it's a time to be laser-focused on training the twelve, What is the focus of his teaching? Verse 31, For he was teaching his disciples and telling them, The Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. Concerning the primacy that Jesus gives here in his teaching, I want to note three things. First of all, the identity of the sufferer. Jesus says, The Son of Man... Is to be delivered into the hands of men, etc. The Son of Man. Who is this Son of Man? Well, as many of you know, the Son of Man is the phrase Jesus most commonly used to describe himself, the Son of Man. And the Son of Man is a phrase invested with glory. Back in the prophecy of Daniel, Daniel's talking about various kingdoms that will rise and fall. And then in Daniel seven thirteen and 14, he mentions this son of man. Listen to what he says. I kept looking in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Who is the Son of Man? He is a glorious king who will reign over an everlasting kingdom. And notice how Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man in the gospel. In Mark 2.10, he says this, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, take up your bed and walk. The Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. In chapter 228, truly I say to you, that's three, 228 says, so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. As the Son of Man, he is Lord over the revered Jewish institution of the Sabbath. And then he, he says in 838, which we have covered for whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the son of man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his father and with the holy angels. Who is this son of man? He is a glorious king who will reign over an everlasting kingdom. He has the authority to forgive sins. He has the authority over the Jewish Sabbath. He will one day come in power and glory with his angels. Who is this son of man? He is a glorious being. But Jesus is saying here, the son of man is to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. How does that go together? You see, this was the stumbling block for the disciples. They had this idea of the Messiah as this coming, glorious, reigning king, and they could not reconcile it to the fact that he will suffer and die. And this is what Jesus keeps pressing upon them, this theme of his death. It's what he taught them after Peter made the great confession, you are the Christ. It's what he taught them when they were coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration. He's trying to get into their minds that this son of man will suffer and die. How can it be that this glorious being, this glorious king will suffer and die? Well, what they didn't understand is that the path to glory was suffering that the way to the Mount of Exaltation was via the Valley of Humiliation, and that the Son of Man, yes, is a glorious king, but he's also a suffering servant. And so Jesus identifies the sufferer. He's the Son of Man who will suffer. And then the certainty and indignity of the sufferings there in verse 31. The Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. If in 831, he emphasized the necessity of his suffering, here he's stressing the certainty of it. He will be delivered. They will kill him. Now, first note the treachery here. When it says he will be delivered, that word means to be given over, to deliver into custody. And we know that it was Judas who delivered Jesus and in this case, it was betrayal, it was treachery. In Mark 14.10, then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went off to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. It's the same word. The deliverance here to the authorities was a betrayal. Judas was a traitor because he was one of the twelve. And Jesus, it says in John, knew from the beginning who it was who would betray him. The amazing thing is that Judas was accepted as one of the 12. He was loved by Jesus as well as the rest. He had the privilege of hearing Jesus teach and accompanying Jesus. He was sent out with the others on their mission trips. He was even entrusted with the money. He was the treasurer of the 12. But what an indignity to be betrayed by what was presumed to be a friend. What a painful dishonor and insult to be betrayed by a familiar friend. David reflects on this in a couple of the Psalms. In Psalm 41, he says this in verse 9, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. I am told, thankfully, have not experienced and don't intend to experience, but a large part of the pain of divorce is because it's rejection by someone who knows you so well, who knows you so intimately and yet rejects you. That certainly is a large part of the pain of divorce. It's a betrayal. And Jesus experienced betrayal by one of his own twelve. Some of us here know a man, a pastor formerly, who devoted 21 years of his life to ministering to the underground church in China, a giant of a man of God, and he was used to influence hundreds if not thousands of Chinese Christians by his in-depth teaching in the underground church. A couple of years ago, one of his meetings was raided, he was called before the authorities, in a grueling inquisition and was kicked out of the country, unable to return. But the sad thing is he was betrayed by one of the men he himself had discipled. It was a betrayal. Jesus experienced a betrayal. There was treachery. But then consider the brutality. It says they will kill him. Friends, here's the raw, unvarnished fact that when mankind could get his hands on God, he killed him. You know, we read of mankind's hostility to God. We read Colossians 121, although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind. We read Romans 8-7 that says, the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. We read those things, but I think we can be tempted to play down those statements. I mean, after all, man can be very religious, Man can be very moral. Man made in the image of God is capable of doing great things. Lofty accomplishments. But Jesus' plain prediction here blows away the smoke and faces us with the hard truth. Man in his fallen condition hates God. And if he had his way, would rid the world of God. How do we know? Because on the one occasion... That man had the upper hand on God, so to speak. When Jesus, the God-man, came in humiliation and weakness and vulnerability, what did man do? We killed him. And who killed Jesus? Did the Jews kill Jesus? They had their part, right? We read that he was delivered over to the chief priests and elders, They brought false accusations against him. They stirred up the crowd against him. They manipulated the Roman officers to crucify him. But God arranged it such that it was actually Gentiles who crucified Jesus. The Gentiles, the Romans had the power of capital punishment and the Jews didn't. Isn't it amazing how God arranged it so that both Jew and Gentile are responsible representatively for the death of Jesus Christ the whole world has blood on its hands for killing Jesus. Imagine a 120-pound man lying on the beach, and along comes a 240-pound bully. Now, if you weigh 240 pounds, I'm not insinuating that you're a bully. But let's imagine a 240-pound bully coming and kicking the proverbial sand in the face of this little 120-pound man. What does the 120-pound man do? Well, he... he Clenches his fist, he gnashes his teeth, he turns red with rage, but, but he can't do anything against a 240-pound bully. But then one day, the little man is riding in his pickup truck in town, and he sees the bully on a motorcycle. Now he's vulnerable. Now he's exposed. What will he do? If his rage is strong enough, he will rev up the engine, and he will run down that bully who's now vulnerable on his motorcycle. Well, here is mankind. The Bible says in Psalm 2 that the nations rage against God. Now, the illustration breaks down. God is not a bully. God is kind to ungrateful and evil men. God is love. But man in his rebellion rages against God. But what can he do against omnipotence? You might as well try to whip the sea into submission than fight against omnipotence. But when God comes to earth, as a man. And God condescends to envelop his, him, his, himself in the frail humanity of, of flesh. And he walks among men, not with an entourage of bodyguards, not with a full complement of, of wary, eagle-eyed ser, secret service agents, but he, he comes and he walks among men, vulnerable, exposed. Now we will learn what mankind really thinks about God. What is in the heart of men toward God? The son of man is to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. Both representatives of the Jews and the Gentiles, the Gentiles politically motivated, the Jews religiously motivated, have blood on their hands. As Peter said in his Pentecost sermon to the Jews, you nailed him to the cross by the hands of godless men. Can there be any question about fallen man's basic disposition toward the God who made him? They killed him. But then we see here the victory that follows the suffering and death. The killing of Jesus was not the end. It would have been with any other mere mortal, but Jesus, not a mere man, He is the God-man, and after he finished his messianic work of dying on the cross for his people, God exalted him, and the Apostle Paul puts it well in Philippians chapter 2, where he says, beginning at verse 8, "...being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name." so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Exaltation follows humiliation, and the first phase of exaltation is resurrection. Well, let's take away a few lessons from this point, the point being the primacy Jesus gives to his suffering and death in teaching the disciples. First of all, it tells us something about the gospel. At the very heart of the gospel message is a suffering, dying, and gloriously risen Savior. This is the primary truth that Jesus is seeking to hammer home to his disciples. And friends, this is the distilled essence of the gospel. When Peter preaches on that momentous day of Pentecost, The death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus, the heart of the gospel message. When Paul wants to distill the gospel message in 1 Corinthians 15, beginning of verse 1, he says, Now I made known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you. Verse 3, For I deliver to you Of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. The distilled essence of the gospel is Jesus died, and Jesus, he died for sinners, and he was raised. Jesus did not come to be merely an ethical example and to bring moral influence to the world. He died to shed his precious blood from a sinless life to redeem guilty sinners who will believe in him. What does that mean? It means that a bloodless, resurrectionless Christianity is no Christianity at all. Liberalism, as it has been known, modernism, which has been around for over a, a century, is no Christianity at all. J. Gresham Machen in the 1920s or 30s wrote a book, Christianity and Liberalism, showing that liberalism who denies the blood atonement of Christ, denies the bodily resurrection of Christ, that is not Christianity. That is a totally different religion. A bloodless, resurrectionless Christianity is no Christianity at all. This also tells us something about the Savior. How great was the condescending love of Jesus. He was not an unwitting victim of the cross. He knew his hour was coming. He knew who it was who would betray him. No one took his life from him. He says in John 10, 18, I lay it down of my own initiative. When he speaks here in verse 31, the language of certainty, it will come to pass. They will kill him. It will happen because he wills it to happen. He will not resist it happening. He will give his life. He will surrender himself. He will sanctify himself unto death that his people might be sanctified in the truth. The suffering and death of Jesus on our behalf was anticipated, known, planned, and willed. He wasn't suddenly cut off in the midst of his ministry. To suffer and die was his ministry. It was the culmination of his ministry. The Son of Man has come not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many how that magnifies, to our understanding, the love of Jesus Christ for us. But then it also tells us something about mankind. What is in the hearts of fallen men regarding God, their creator? We need to get it clearly fixed in mind. People are not just mildly piqued at God. They're not just slightly dissatisfied with God's government. They're they're not just a little uncomfortable with God's ways The hostility in the hearts of men for God and for Jesus is deep. It's endemic to the entire race, and it's unquenchable except by the grace of God in regeneration. And that's why we should not be surprised when we see the persecution of Christians and the killing of Christians throughout the history of the church. It began right after, right in the first century, with the persecution of Christians under the emperors, the cruel um, persecution, the cruel deaths at the hands of gladiators and wild beasts and being burned in Nero's garden parties. We see it through history. We see it those prior to the Reformation, the followers of John Wycliffe, the Lollards, who were put to death because they dared to read the Bible translated into English that he had done the sacrifices made by other pre-reformed groups, the, the Albigenses, the Waldenses, the Covenanters in Scotland, the Reformers, and to the present day. It shouldn't surprise us that the Taliban are going house to house in Afghanistan to find Christians and to kill them. It shouldn't surprise us that the Burmese army is targeting Christians to kill, that Muslims all over the world are killing Christians. And it shouldn't surprise us that in our own nation rarely led by godly people, but now being led by especially ungodly people in the upper echelons of government are trampling underfoot the creation ordinances of marriage and the family and the sanctity of life made in the image of God, pushing to make the state God, little g, instead of the God who rules from heaven. What I'm saying is these things should grieve us but you should not be shocked by these things. Jesus said, if they hate you, they hated me first. Peter says in 1 Peter 4, he says, don't be surprised at the fiery trial which is coming upon you as as though something strange were happening to you. No, people can't get at God now. They can't get at Jesus now because he's in heaven, but they persecute him in effigy by persecuting his people. It also tells us something about our evangelistic message. A crucial part of our message is to let people know how God views them. And how we present the problem will be what determines the remedy. And we need to tell people that their problem is serious. It's not that they made a few mistakes and they're a little less than perfect and they need a little help from God. We need to tell them that they have hearts of stone that hate God, whether they're religious or not. They're rebels against God and his government and they need a radical change of a new heart. And then the final thing this point tells us is it tells you something about you as a Christian. We all at one point were hostile toward God. We all hated God. No matter how religious you were, we see that we hated God in our hearts. What changed it? The only thing that can change it The miracle of regeneration, the new birth whereby God took out that cold, hard heart of stone by which we hated God, despite whatever veneer of religiosity, and he put in us a heart of flesh, a heart that loves him and loves others. It's regeneration leading to repentance and faith, conversion that has made the difference. Praise God that he's turned us from being haters of God to lovers of God. Well, finally, and very briefly, the obstinacy of the disciples' ignorance in the face of Jesus' teaching. Once again, they don't get it. It's amazing, isn't it? It's amazing. But they did not understand this statement and they were afraid to ask him. Amazing that they did not understand. They still do not understand. Two things quickly about their stubborn ignorance it's culpable. They're guilty. How often he says, slow of heart to believe. He rebukes them often in the Gospels. They were culpable for not getting it, for not understanding it. But also, it's providential ignorance. Luke says in his version, it was concealed from them. So they were responsible and culpable for not getting it. And yet in God's sovereignty, it was withheld from them. How do we fit together sovereignty and responsibility? Well, the Bible does. Jesus in Matthew 11 can say, I thank you, God, that you've hidden these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them to babes. Sovereign, Sovereignty. And then a few verses later, he says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. Responsibility. God is sovereign and man is fully responsible. A couple quick observations from this. We learn something about ourselves. The apostles had deep-rooted prejudices about the Messiah that, that kept them blinded to the truth about what kind of Messiah Jesus was. And sometimes we can have stubborn prejudices that keep us from arriving at the truth. I was overhearing my son this past week as we were with him talking to somebody who had asked him a question about Calvinism. It was very good that this person was asking the question. This person didn't come from a tradition of Calvinism and wanted to know about Calvinism. So my son took him to a primary passage on sovereign election. And right away, the person said, but what about what about this? What about that? And my son has learned to say, now, wait a minute. We'll deal with that. But let's come to terms with what this passage says first. Then we'll deal with that. But people always want to, what about this? What about that? Trying to find contradictions and what i'm saying is you you have any deep-rooted prejudice you know submit to the word of god let god's word teach you now there are some things are fixed i had a professor in bible college who said the purpose of an open mind is to let the truth in and then you shut it again and with some things that's true the deity of christ the substitutionary death of christ the resurrection of christ the hope of heaven You can't convince me otherwise. I opened my mind to the truth and my mind is shut again. But there are other things that our minds still need to be open about, right? Eschatology, 15 years into my Christian life, I switched my eschatology. I think I'm fixed in it for 36 years now, but I still want to be open to truth. Some things are fixed and we don't let go of. Other things we want to be open and not hold on to stubborn prejudices if the word of God is teaching us otherwise. So we always want to be learning and growing in the word. And we need to depend on God to open the heart. It took God to open the hearts of these disciples. And ultimately, it's only God who can open people's hearts, either to believe initially or to believe some truth from his word. Well, let's pray and then we'll sing. Father, help us to learn the things we ought to learn from the pattern of our Lord Jesus Christ and to live them out, we ask in His name,